Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're broadcasting to you from our studio in the Metro Washington, D.C. area. On today's show, environmentalist, activist, and lawyer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. joins us on the eve of the D.C. premiere of the IMAX DocuEnviro adventure film, Grand Canyon Adventure, River at Rift, to talk about the state of the Colorado River and his drive to protect it and other waterways around the world. Then Rob Holmes and the Green Living Project are at the forefront of documenting cutting-edge global sustainability projects. We will catch up with Rob in D.C. as he shares some of Green Living Project's travel sustainability success stories. And finally, imagine taking your 18-month-old son, your wife, and your dog on a trip around the world in a VW bus at the height of the Vietnam War. Author Bill Rainey did just that and now shares his memories in a new book, Letters to Zerky. As always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And, you know, we love connecting with you during the week on in real time on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Stitcher, a mobile app that allows you to listen to us, World Footprints, on the go on any mobile device. So join us on all of those social networks and sign up for our newsletter and receive some travel deal information from our website at worldfootprints.com. When you hear Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talk about the sad state of the Colorado River, it is easy to understand why he cares so deeply about our nations and our planet's waterways. The Colorado River at this point never even reaches the sea. It it peters out in the middle of the desert um, and just dries up. And it used to to feed um, one of the richest estuaries on the planet and the, the Sea of Cortez. There was tens of thousands of shorebirds and wading birds that used that estuary as part of their migration and part of their staging area. There were uh, thousands of fish, hundreds of fish species that, that depended on the, uh, on the freshwater input of the Colorado estuary. There was the smallest dolphin on earth that lived there that's now extinct because the Colorado rivers have disappeared. So it's really a it's a it's a tragedy of global proportions, and uh, it's the result of bad leadership. Um, it's the result of greed and short-sighted uh, uh, on policies, the state and national policies on water. The Colorado River is the focus of the film you appear in, Grand Canyon Adventure: River at Risk. Talk to us about why you got involved with this film. Well, it, for me, it was it was a no-brainer. It was a chance to go down the Colorado River. So, um, I, you know, the Colorado River is one of the iconic rivers for people who are uh, who love whitewater. And I've been doing whitewater paddling since I was a little kid. Um, this was also a chance for me to go with my daughter, who was 18 years old. My daughter, Kick, and um, it, that's important to me because my father took me on this river when I was 13. And Kick's been on many whitewater rivers. Um, she's an accomplished kayaker and paddler, and 
she's been on whitewater with me all over the world since she was a little girl, but she'd never been on the Colorado, which is kind of the the um it's the flagship of of whitewater rivers it's the gold standard it's the you know it's the river by which all other whitewater rivers are judged and to be able to return to it with her after thirty years essentially uh you know is a real treat mm-hmm. now your organization Waterkeepers was born out of your work preserving and protecting the Hudson River. Uh, talk about the work that Waterkeepers is doing today. Well, there's 200 Waterkeepers. The movement got started on the Hudson River in 1966. It was started by a blue-collar coalition of commercial and recreational fishermen who mobilized to reclaim the river from its polluters. Um, these were people who had, for the most part, little. they weren't affluent people. They had little expectation they'd ever see Yellowstone or or Yosemite or the national parks. For them, the environment was their backyard. It was the bathing beaches, the swimming holes, the fishing holes of the river. Penn Central Railroad in 1966 began vomiting oil from a a four-and-a-half-foot pipe in the Croton-Harmon rail yard. The oil went up the river on the tides and blackened the beaches and made the shad taste of diesel. And the people in the town of Crotonville, which was one of the enclaves for the commercial fishery on the Hudson, came together in the American Legion Hall, about 300 people, to talk about how to reclaim their river. They had been to the government agencies that are supposed to protect Americans from pollution, and they got no help. They'd come to the conclusion that government was actually in cahoots with the polluters. And they talked about putting bombs in the pipes, of jamming mattresses up the pipes, of lighting the oil slick from the Penn Central Pipe on fire, floating a raft of dynamite into the intake of the Indian Point Power Plant, which at that time was killing a million fish a day on its intake screens and taking food off their family tables. And then a a man stood up whose name was Bob Boyle. He was the outdoor editor of Sports Illustrated magazine. There were 300 people in the American Legion Hall that night trying to figure out how to get their river back. And he had written an article about angling in the Hudson two years before. And in researching it, he had discovered an ancient navigational statute called the 1888 Rivers and Harbors Act that said it was illegal to pollute any waterway in the United States. You had to pay a big penalty to get if you got caught. But also there was a bounty provision that said that anybody who turned in the polluter got to keep half the fine. Mm-hmm. And um, he stood in front of this group that night and he said, you know, instead of breaking the law, let's start enforcing it. And they resolved that they were going to start a group. It was then called the Hudson River Fishermen's Association. It later became Riverkeeper. They were going to go out and track down and prosecute every polluter on the Hudson. And 18 months later, they collected the first bounty in United States history under this 19th century statute. They shut down the Penn Central Pipe for good. Then they used that money to go after Sipagaygi and Tuck Tape and Standard Brands and American Cyanamid, the biggest corporations in America, Anaconda Wire and Cable, collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines and bounties. They used the money to build a boat and they today which they patrols the river tracking down polluters they hired lawyers they hired a river keeper a former commercial fisherman in 1984 using bounty money and today and then they restored the hudson today the hudson's the richest water body in the north atlantic it produces more pounds of fish per acre more biomass per gallon than any other waterway in the atlantic north the equator and the miraculous resurrection of the hudson has inspired the creation of a uh, around 200 river keepers 
all water keepers all over the country. We and now we have growth internationally. We have 17 in Australia. We have I think 29 in Latin America. We have a dozen in Canada. We have seven in Russia, seven in China. Uh, we just got an application from Iraq today for a water keeper there. So we're the fastest growing water protection group in the world. And you know it was we have one on the Colorado as well. And it was um, it was great for me to be able to see the river again. Your father and your uncles always spoke of legacy and left a tremendous legacy in terms of inspiring a generation to uh, act and to leave something positive behind for their children. As we focus on the state of our environment and this film puts a particular focus on the Colorado, talk to us about the importance of nature, the importance of this legacy in terms of 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 shaping who we are and really showing what America really should stand for. Well, you know, we're not protecting um, our rivers and streams, our nature, so much for the sake of the fishes and the birds. We're we're safeguarding those things because they're the infrastructure of our community. And if we want to meet our obligation as a generation, as a nation, as a civilization, which is to create communities for our children that provide them with the same opportunities for dignity and enrichment and prosperity and good health as the communities that our parents gave us. We've got to start by protecting our environmental infrastructure, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the wildlife, the fisheries, the public lands, the, the shared resource of our society, the commons or the commonwealth, those things that are not susceptible to private ownership but by their nature are the possession of the entire community, the, um, the landscapes and rivers that connect us to our past, to our history, that provide context to our communities, and that are the source ultimately of our values and virtues and our character as a people. You know, my father um, taught us that this was part of our natural heritage. This is our legacy. And from the beginning of our nation's history, our greatest political leaders and cultural leaders and philosophers and theologians were telling the American people that you don't have to be ashamed that you don't have the 1500 years of culture that they have in Europe because you have this relationship to the land and particularly wilderness which is the undiluted work of the creator and that's going to be the source of your values and virtues and character and you know if you look through at every valid piece of classic American literature whether it's Hawthorne or Melville or James Fenimore Cooper or Washington Irving or, you know, Emerson Thoreau, uh, you know, and on and on. The, this, the, the, this, the central unifying theme is this conviction that nature was the critical defining element of our culture. Our poets, Whitman, Frost, Emily Dickinson, Robert Serves, our artists, uh, Hudson River School, Thomas Cole, Frederick Church, Samuel F. B. Morris, all of Bierstadt and Cropsey, all of them painted these stark landscapes, these indomitable landscapes, which, you know, were meant to portray um, the, um, the 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 freshness and the energy of American democracy, as opposed to the stale, you know, worn-out, stuffy, um, monarchical uh, governments of Europe and. Frederick Jackson Turner, who was our greatest American historian, said that in America, democracy came out of the wilderness. Without these great tracts of, of forests and, and, and fields and savannas, we wouldn't have evolved the political system that now defines us as a people.
some of your great experiences have been uh, uh, life experience have been shaped because of your adventures on rivers around America, the Snake River, the Colorado River obviously is featured in the film. Talk to us about the transformative impact your journeys have had uh, with respect to some of the river uh, experiences that, that you've had in shaping who you are today. Well, you know, I, uh, my father took us on all of the great whitewater rivers, or most of the great ones, when we were kids, and I've continued to do that. My brothers and I owned a whitewater company, primarily a kayaking company, um, for um, more than 10 years uh, during our college days, and we uh, did whitewater all over Canada. We did a lot of first descents on rivers like the Magpie, like the Great Whale, which is up in the Arctic, um, and uh, and all over Latin America, the Atrato in Colombia, the Caroni in Venezuela, the Apurimac in Peru, and you know um, all across uh, our continent. And uh, you know, uh, white waters, and that's something that I do with my kids today. I bring my children every year to Chile to do one of the great rivers on the world, the Futaleifu in Patagonia. And it's a it's a wonderful way of experiencing wilderness, of struggling with wilderness without destroying it, you know, and of of watching um, from a uh, from a boat as the landscapes pass by and getting a feel for the watersheds, not just the the geology and the biology which are defined by the watersheds and by the river systems, but also the history and culture of a nation, which you know are completely tied up. In the river and defined by the river systems. Well, last question, and I can't let you go before I uh, ask you about your experience at the LSC. I also studied at the London School of Economics and uh, had a, a wonderful time. What was that experience like for you? Well, I enjoyed living in in Europe for a year. Although I have to say, I didn't see sunshine much, and I <laughs> I need a lot of sunshine. So, but it was fun. I I got to. Um, drive around Scotland and Ireland, and uh, you know, and see uh, parts of the world. You know, get a feel for Europe and England, and see parts of the world that I had not spent time in. Well, thank you so much for everything you're doing, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. And thank you very much for joining us today on World Footprint. Thanks for having me. When we come back, we'll focus on global sustainability with Green Living Project's Rob Holmes next as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name is Emline. I'm from Korea. I love Footprints Radio. Tom Gilmore lives on a farm. There's a storm on the way, so he's boarding up the windows of his house. Haley Williams lives in an apartment. It's a beautiful day. She's making her usual monthly donation to the American Red Cross. Tom doesn't know a tornado will leave his family with no place to go. Haley doesn't know her gift will help give Tom's family shelter. When you support the Red Cross, you change a life. Starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org to learn about life-changing opportunities in your area. Making it green is making sure the air in your home is healthy for your family to breathe. Testing 
for radon is easy. Just call 866-730-GREEN. A message from the US EPA. Happy holidays, everybody. This is Dave Koz for RAD, recording artists, actors, and athletes against drunk driving. When you're traveling during the holidays and see someone who's had too much to drink about to get behind the wheel of their car, get the car keys. Your friends will thank you for it because friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. With over 50 projects in 14 countries around the world, Green Living Project is showing us how sustainable tourism education conservation and volunteerism is changing communities and changing lives the world over. Rob Holmes, the founder and president of Green Living Project, sat down with us in Washington after the premiere of Global Sustainability, Central America to Maine, to talk about some of the success stories Green Living Project has been documenting for the world to see. Rob, welcome to World Footprints. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Talk to us about the genesis behind Green Living Project. What was the motivation for it? I've got a background in conservation, tourism, and storytelling, being a photographer for 20 years, and got to the point where I wanted to get more involved with the communities that I was getting exposed to around the world, but also make a broader impact and do deeper, richer storytelling. And the underlying message and theme for Green Living Project is sustainability. And I like, one thing I always say is I like sustainability it's an overused word it's uh but i like it because it means different things to different people and so ultimately green living project's mission is to educate inspire and entertain people on cutting edge unique sustainability related projects both domestically and internationally now the international footprint of green living project is pretty vast you've gone from africa to south america to central america and north america Talk to us about the geographic scope of, of where you're taking Green Living Project and some of the things that you're doing in those places. Well, we started in Africa in 2008. Green Living Project started in 2007, just putting the idea together. Then in 2008, our first launch was in Africa. And we did a lot of work in Africa, primarily because I think there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, Africa doesn't get the attention it deserves, and it's also thought of as an exotic more remote destination that a lot of Americans, in particular North Americans, don't travel to as much. And I saw there's a huge opportunity to make a difference, to call out a destination in a region. Um, We shifted to South America and then more recently to Central America and then in our backyard domestically in the U.S. The the approach really has been to identify cutting-edge unique stories in different parts of the world, 
um, a huge underlying part to Green Living Project is about the destinations, is about these countries. If it's Rwanda, if it's Namibia, if it's Mozambique, if it's Ecuador, Peru, or more locally, uh, Mexico, Guatemala, Belize. So that the tourism aspect to Green Living Project is really important. Um, tourism is, we focus on five markets, tourism being the most important, but we also look at wildlife conservation, education, community development, and food is an exciting area with culinary tourism really growing and, and I think an important uh, or, or new exciting market for, for tourism. Now, Rob, you, uh, as you just discussed, you've been all over the world documenting sustainable development projects. How do you find these, uh, these projects that you document or, or, or select them? Well, Green Living Project has sort of a three-tier approach to how we identify projects. First, we've got relationships with well-known organizations, if it's the UNDP, CARE, Rainforest Alliance, Earthwatch, that are doing great work around the world. They're well-known. They're, they've got credibility and a, and a great reputation, a lot of these organizations. A lot of organizations, though, that are smaller contact us. And uh, so, again, we're not just working with big organizations. And I think lastly, we also, the third part is we do our own research because sometimes the best story, doesn't matter what you're talking about, if it's food, if it's wildlife, if it's tourism, some of the best stories are those tiny little NGO, small little organizations in a country you've never heard of or a project you've never heard of that is the best story. So at the end of the day, we need to make sure we're telling the best stories doesn't matter where it is, uh, what countries or regions we're spotlighting, but um, the ultimately our goal is to showcase a diverse array of different projects where people are going to walk away. One reason why we're doing shorts, shorts meaning four to six minute videos, is because we believe if we come out with ten different projects on ten different stories in three countries, we're going to have a broader impact on the distribution side versus one documentary on one topic because we can take those 10, not just showcase them in the 175 events that we do nationwide, but also through the Internet, through television. We have outside televisions now licensing our content. Outside televisions now licensing our content. And so there's a lot new distribution outlets with this, this, this short story format. And where we're going into the future is really to continue this path on identifying cutting-edge great stories where people are going to learn things. The bar is rising. If you look at tourism and all the great things, you know, it's not just sustainability now. It's responsible tourism. It's sustainable tourism. It's getting deeper. It's geotourism. I mean, there's so many new words being created. But at the end of the day, we stand behind telling great stories. And uh, we're looking at going back to Africa, also going to Asia. There are a lot of great stories in Europe that we're uncovering, So, and, and also in our backyard in the U.S. and Canada. So it, it's about expanding the reach and exposing, uncovering new destinations, exciting travel destinations, but ultimately we rest our laurels on great stories. And where can these shorts be seen? I mean, you mentioned a lot of the distribution channels, but... For example, in the D.C. market, is there a cable channel that rents, rents uh, the shorts, or uh, are they mostly seen on the, the Internet, or, or what? What, what can people, where can people find you? The distribution strategy for Green Living Project is really sort of three tiers. The first is we have a mobile team that goes around the country showcasing these projects at schools, retail stores, festivals nationwide. Uh, we'll be doing over 175 events next year alone around the country. Um, so that's one way. We have these larger uh, per urban premieres 
uh, you know, the DC premiere being a great example, uh, but we also go to San Francisco, Seattle, uh, Los Angeles, New York, Boston. So we do about 10 premieres uh, a year, one per month, essentially. Uh, and then thirdly is just what you say on the television side, you know, you can, we're slowly uh, going into television. You know, I think my original vision was to build our business, build our audience, build our reputation, get a following before going into television. I, I feel that too many people just rush into television with their demo on a, on a DVD and say, this is what I want to do. Well, we want to say, this is what we've done. This is what we're doing and will continue to doing. So television is a new outlet, but it's one leg of our distribution. But right now in the D.C. market, uh, if you have outside television on your local cable channel, you can see uh, 12 of our projects will be on outside television this fall. And starting next year, we're, we're now starting to talk to television and cable outlets now because we have now... Uh, we have over 60 projects now across 17 countries, so we've got a lot of diversity, a lot of depth, and uh, so ultimately people are starting to come to us, which is what we wanted. We didn't want to. We wanted people to come to us, say, "Hey, we heard about your reputation. We've heard about the work you're doing. Can we use some of these in our schools, at festivals, at at trade shows, as an educational vehicle? If it's tourism, wildlife, uh, education. So it, it's it's great to see people seeing the value of shorts." the value of storytelling, and ultimately the value of sustainable principles. One of the projects that we learned about was planting in Parma a very unique project in Panama that talks about sustainable forestry as well as community development in terms of how you're using that organization to really empower uh, the locals there to really develop an industry that really speaks to some of your principles that uh, you are helping to promote through Green Living Project. Talk to us about that project and, 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 and how that's really representing some of the better things that Green Living is really taking to the rest of the world out here in terms of your mission and your educational focus. What I like about planning empowerment is it's a simple story, and sometimes the most popular stories that we tell are the simplest. It's simple in the sense that you got some key issues here. You have deforestation, which we've all heard about. You know, Panama has the largest rainforest in the Western Hemisphere outside of the Amazon, something that a lot of people don't know. So there's an opportunity when you look at agroforestry, sustainable forestry, which is the message of planting empowerment, uh, there's a huge opportunity because they still have intact a, a beautiful rainforest. Um, it also brings in uh, the community aspect. Panama is a unique country. About 50% of the country is still composed of indigenous communities. And so you have that local heritage, the local culture. And so they're helping uh, these local communities, not just with a new sustainable income resource. I mean, planting empowerment is focused on a polyculture agriculture market, meaning a diverse set of different species. Planting trees, if it's mahogany, teak, and other rare and endangered hardwoods, in an actual rainforest setting, in the natural environment. Uh, it's going away from the traditional monoculture, which is just planting rows and rows and rows of trees. The trees in a natural forest grow better. It's like shade-grown coffee. And so this is a new concept uh, in this region of Panama that they're working on. It's challenging. Uh, it needs to provide a regular, renewable income resource for the local people, or they're going to go back to what they were doing, slash and burn. But ultimately, it's sustainable, it's long-term, it's providing steady income, and it's a better income. Uh, the, the trees and the environment flourish. 
Uh, and so I like it personally. I like planning empowerment because it embraces cultural issues, environmental issues, and then economic issues. Ultimately, whatever people are doing in the sustainability world, it's got to make money. And it's got to ultimately improve their life, their standard of living, because uh, the U.S. that we take for granted uh, that a lot of people living around the world are living day to day in, day out, and that next paycheck is what they're living by. And so, they tell a great story. It's a it's a simple but but wonderful story um, on these important issues. And uh, I, I really applaud the work that they're doing in Panama. And it, and it was great for us to showcase them. Now, one of the stories that uh, you were able to share was really about urban sustainable tourism and the focus of Rainforest Alliance and. Granada, Nicaragua. Now, there are a different set of challenges there, obviously, in the urban environment versus the countryside. Talk to us about some of the opportunities, particularly in the urban sustainability area, that people may not necessarily think of as opportunities for growing urban tourism. Well, of all the different aspects of tourism that we focus on, if it's sustainable tourism, volunteerism, urban sustainable tourism tends to be very popular. Why? I think studies show that 80% of Americans live within a two-hour radius of a major urban center. People can relate. People in North America especially can relate to urban projects. Uh, the work that Rainforest Alliance is doing in urban sustainable tourism is really important. Nicaragua is an up-and-coming country. It doesn't have the tourism infrastructure that a Costa Rica does. And in a way, that's an exciting opportunity. They're able to come in and lay the foundation for sustainable tourism being the baseline, not mass tourism. Uh, Costa Rica has experienced definitely a lot of mass tourism. Now they're trying to change it to sustainable tourism. So it is an opportunity for Nicaragua, for uh, supporting the work that Rainforest Alliance is doing. And ultimately, we can relate to these issues in, in an urban setting. And there are a lot of urban issues. If you look at water issues, cultural issues, waste, uh, and, and these are issues that we can all relate to in, in Washington, D.C., in New York City, and, and around North America. So they bring up a lot of issues that we can relate to, and, and it's just a, a compelling story. Rob, one of the projects we saw tonight talked about some of the indigenous cultures that the projects are working with and really some of the challenges in, in trying to shift the paradigm of some of the indigenous people to, to help them toward sustainability. Can you talk a little bit about those challenges and, and some success stories? Green Living Project really focuses on tourism, but a major part of sustainable tourism is the incorporation of the local communities, is supporting the indigenous communities, making them part of the solution. We just documented six sustainable tourism projects in Mexico, and these projects are going to be showcased at the UN Climate Change Conference at the end of November uh, in partnership with Mexico Tourism. And the underlying theme there was the Mayan communities in Mexico, and they are such an integral part of the organizations that we spotlighted in Mexico. In, in Panama, with Planning Empowerment, they're doing the same thing in collaborating and working with indigenous communities. Planning Empowerment is, is doing similar work in sustainable tourism by connecting these indigenous communities to the final solution. Um, they have to be part of the equation. Uh, these indigenous communities, Panama, approximately 50% of Panama is made up of indigenous Panamanians. And in order for the country to move towards sustainability, they have to be part of the dialogue. And ultimately, again, that goes to our work. Sustainability is about long-term sustainability issues. The community has to be part of that solution. If you're going to protect the environment, you're going to help the economy, 
they are the economy, these indigenous communities. They are the lifeline of the Darien Gap region. It's composed of indigenous communities. So if you're going to be successful in whatever you're doing, in this case, planning empowerment with uh, multi, you know, agroforestry, sustainable agroforestry, the indigenous communities have to be part of the solution. And so as for Green Living Project, tying in a community aspect is, is our lifeline. It has to be because uh, any model of sustainable tourism that you look at, the community is always a part of it. Triple bottom line issues, uh, it's also always culture and community tied in. And, uh, you know, we want to embrace that because ultimately one of the, the final points I made tonight was support the local community. Um, you have to. You know, if you're just going on a mass tourism trip where you're going through a tour operator or a company, make sure that those dollars, some of your trip is going to the local community. And just by asking questions, getting involved, asking, uh, you know, also, you know, try going Try supporting more sustainable tourism because uh, by talking to the tour operators, talking to the local companies, the local hotels, uh, practice sustainable tourism. Talk to the local hotels, talk to the local tour operators and see, hey, is a percentage of my, in the money that I put toward your trip or your hotel, is it going to local people? Are you hiring local staff? Ask questions. The best way, best thing that people can do, tourists can do, uh, as they travel around the world, all of us can do, is ask questions. Get involved with the organizations that you visit or you want to get involved with. Rob, one of the unique things about uh, what you've done is that you've taken your passion and your background to really bring a focus here to really transform your life. And, and I like the fact that you majored in wildlife management as an undergrad and you're using your MBA here to really bring ingenuity to solving some really tough problems. How has this journey been for you, this, this experience through Green Living Project and really bringing together and coalescing all of these things that uh, make up who you are today and what uh, I think is really bringing greatly needed focus, ingenuity to some really tough problems and problem solving around the world? Well, are you asking how have things been going for for me or my wife? Um, you know, th this journey for Green Living Project, it is a passion play. I mean, I, I, I'm living my dream in wanting to combine my the areas that I'm most passionate about. If it's international travel, if it's conservation, sustainability, whatever you want to call it. If, if it's business, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And... Uh, and then ultimately tourism. I know, there, and and the way I look at all of this is sort of the glass is half full type approach. There, there's a lot of opportunity out there. When I go to a hotel and see that they're not recycling or seeing that they're not being as green as they can, I actually see that as an opportunity. To there's still growth out there. People think that sustainable tourism is done. Like, oh yeah, it's so old. Like, no way. People, we have barely touched, scratched the surface. And that's where I see this, all of these challenges as opportunities. Uh, to make a difference and um, for Green Living Project ultimately for me it's about educating people it's about inspiring people on these great stories that are out there that we can make a difference that all of us can make a difference in the work we do the way we travel the simple things it's about bringing out great stories locally and globally we're all going to travel you know you can't and, and development's going to happen you know, and that's, you know, I, I'm sort of a, a quasi, I'm a, I'm a conservationist, but I also have a business hat on. You know, this isn't, I'm not a radical. I'm not going to go in and, and, and say, don't do this. I'm going to say, do this, 
but do it in a more sustainable, environmentally sensitive, culturally sensitive way. And I think that's ultimately my mantra and in, in, in our approach is that embrace these great stories, let them rise above and get the attention that they deserve. And ultimately for us, it's, it's uh, just exposing people to these success stories and exciting new destinations that uh, people haven't heard of and ultimately great organizations that they should support in indigenous communities. Rob, talk to us about the Future of Green Living Project. Uh, we know that uh, you're going to be doing more work in North America, particularly New Mexico. Talk to us about what's next. What's next for Green Living Project is uh, obviously to continue the success we've had in documenting projects in, in uh, Africa and Latin America, but the domestic work is really exciting. Uh, we're going to be uh, in December in New Mexico. Next year we're already looking at projects in Idaho, Oregon, Vermont, um, Maryland, and there's a lot of different things going on you know, around the country, and, and we want to embrace that and, and give people that local and global perspective. On the international front, uh, we're looking at projects in Europe, we're looking at projects in uh, Asia now. Asia is a huge market, um, looking at projects in China and India. So there's a lot of great stories. At the end of the day, we're going to go where the best stories are. And uh, obviously we want to bring in the tourism aspect and spotlighting unique and, and exciting destinations if it's Ghana or, or, uh, or uh, Angola or, or these up-and-coming travel destinations. But where Green Living Project is going is just to continue that momentum on embracing sustainable issues, if it's education, tourism, food, and, and, and really uh, r uh, you know, continue that momentum of, of showcasing and promoting uh, great stories. Rob, if people want to follow Green Living Project, where can they go? Well, I think there's a couple ways. Obviously, our website, greenlivingproject.com, we showcase all the projects we've documented to date. Um, that's obviously the first great resource. Secondly, our mobile team is going around the country, and I would really encourage people that are in the education field, have our mobile tour come to your neck of the woods. Um, and I really encourage that. We have a free education program that's been very well received in over 100 schools nationwide. Uh, so the mobile tour is, is a great outlet. It's grassroots. It's flexible. Um, and, and it's just been very successful in schools. Uh, these larger premieres are, are going nationwide. So obviously our website is a great resource and our, and our uh, page on our, our Facebook page and, and Twitter page are obviously great outlets too just to keep up to date. Uh, and television's going to be an exciting market for us. We're, we're just now getting into it. Um, the time is right. We've, we've got our scale and, and where we've wanted to, to grow this. And uh, so television is a logical market. It reaches a lot of people, and there are a lot of uh, great opportunities in, in continuing to spread the word on these sustainable tourism and sustainability issues. Rob Holmes, founder and president of Green Living Project. We thank you for being with us today on World Footprints. Well, it's great to talk to you guys, and thanks again for the opportunity. After the break, Bill Rainey, the author of A Most Poignant Story, and one that I consider to be a wonderful expression of love, Letters to Zerky, joins us next when World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, this is Paul Harris from uh, Seven Oaks in England. We're once again here in New Orleans. I think it's my 35th or 40th, 40th time, <laughs> and it's always a pleasure to come back. We always bring our, our musicians with us. And it's a great pleasure to uh, meet uh, our friends from World Footprints and uh, wish you all the success with your show and uh, looking forward to seeing you again sometime. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? 
What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. And now for the number one play of the week. You couldn't ask for a better finish. He moves left. He sees an opening. He's at the designated driver booth, and it looks like he's pledging. He's going to make sure his friends and family buckle up and get home safely. With that play, the designated driver's one step closer to following his favorite team to the Super Bowl because responsibility has its rewards. To find out more, visit the designated driver booth at the stadium or www.rhir.org. A message from this station and Team Coalition. Hi, everyone. This is Reba McIntyre for RAD. You know, I see a lot of funny things traveling all over this beautiful country of ours, but one thing that's not very funny is when someone gets in a car trying to drive when they're drunk. Take their keys away from them because friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sale on travel essentials and services like passport processing. I'm Lord Richard, and I'm from Northern Ireland, and I have uh, a record company uh, which produces New Orleans records, jazz records from the 1960s and early 70s uh, from New Orleans, and uh, I just love World Footprints. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. Imagine taking your 18-month-old son, your wife, and your dog on a trip around the world in a VW bus at the height of the Vietnam War. Bill Rainey did just that. Because his son Eric was so little, Bill wrote letters to him and his wife Joanne kept a journal so that they could capture memories for Eric when he grew older. Sadly, the chance to revisit these treasured memories were lost when Bill lost his family. But years later, Bill did relive his journeys and he decided to share his memories in his new book, Letters to Zerky. Bill, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, Letters to Zerky is one of the most beautiful expressions of love I've ever read. Talk to us about your reasons for publishing this book now, more than 40 years after your travels. Yes, it was written a long time ago, but published very recently. You see, the, the, the letters were not with the intention or envisionment that it ever becoming a book. They were actual letters that were written to my son. Zerky, uh, who was 10 months old at the time we began this uh, adventure. Uh, this trip uh, ended up going around the world. And uh, he was a baby, and we, my wife and I realized that he would never remember any of this. And because for us it was uh, pretty much the trip of a lifetime, uh, we'd be talking about it in front of him, you know, for, as the years went by. And, and we recognized that he wouldn't remember it, and someday 
he, he would be curious about it all because, after all, he'd been on it. So I got the bright idea of writing him a series of letters. And uh, every night after their, almost every night uh, after we, the day was done and we had the dishes done, I'd sit down in the Volkswagen bus in the rear seat and pull out the little table that it had. And, and I'd, I'd write him a letter uh, most frequently on what, 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 we, what had happened that day, although I didn't do it every day. I ended up combining some of the letters, and, and so it is, it is day by day. But uh, they were to give to him when he, when he became old enough to read or, or to become curious about, about that whole trip. And then um, when we got into the Middle East, there was so much going on so many things that I couldn't incor- I couldn't even remember them all and, and incorporate them all into the uh, into the letters because it, it, the whole adventure and the, and the travel mm-hmm. got very rich. So my wife started keeping a diary, and uh, and that was going to be part of it. And, and, and then as we went along, uh, we took a lot of photographs, pictures of Zerke in front of the Eiffel Tower and Zerke at Dachau and Zerke at the mountains and Zerke in Kathmandu and Zerke in, in all these places. And uh, we never gave them to him because when we got back uh, over a year later, um, uh, I moved down to Santa Cruz. I had a business opportunity to start the motion picture theater down there. And uh, opening uh, one month, one month after opening day for the theater, uh, Joanne died of a cerebral aneurysm in the night. Mm-hmm. And then about a year after that, sir, he got run over by a truck. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, uh, all these letters were irrelevant. And put all that stuff away, and I didn't, I didn't think about it for many years. Unfortunately, I didn't throw it away or burn it, which, which, which I, I might have. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and many, many years later, I, I came across it and I started looking at them. And, and I read them over, and I realized a lot of them were about the Middle East, about, about Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran and all these places that were in the news these days. Thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I could You're traveling right now in the Zerkimobile. Uh, talk to us about uh, about uh, your travels right now, and tell us about uh, the name Zerki and its origins. Uh, his name is Eric. His name is Rainey. Next, and my name was Bill. And all my life um, in school and other places, people would say, "Hey, Bill," and and you know, and half a dozen people or so it seemed would stand up. And I, I just got kind of tired of being, you know, just, just plain Bill. And so I, I got the idea that if I ever had a kid, I'm, I'm going to give him a name, you know, an unusual name, so so there won't be a lot of them around. And, and uh, somehow when that, when that actually happened, I came up with the idea of Xerxes. King Xerxes of Persia. And so we gave him that. Was, his first name was Eric. His middle name was Xerxes. But and it turned out that nobody could handle Xerxes. Uh, nobody pronounced it, and they'd see it, and they would, they would know what, what, what is this? It's weird stuff. And so they, everybody started calling him Zerky. And, and we did too, because we thought that was kind of kind of cool. And, and, that's, and that's how Zerky came about. I guess it's what you call a nickname. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it is it is a, a, a cute and memorable name, and and uh, you know, looking at some of the the photographs of him in the book, he looks like a zerky. <laughs> and you know, the name fits him. Now, Bill, in addition to traveling through Europe and Southeast Asia, you also visited several countries that really aren't safe to explore today. Countries like Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. What was it like experiencing the Middle East back when Americans were liked? Well, it was difficult, not not for the reasons that people today seem to think because it was dangerous or because you, you run into hostile people. Uh, people were, I think I could say without exception, maybe there was one exception when the guy tried to really try to cheat me out at the gas pump, but that was relatively minor. And um, without exception, uh, people people were very generous. Um, there was a lot of culture shock because when when you're in some far off place where the people don't speak English and the culture and the religion and everything is very different, it's hard to get around. I mean, we weren't on a guided tour or anything like that where we had translators or anything. We, mm-hmm. we had to, to muddle our way through. And there were a lot of cultural misunderstandings that, that, that we bumped into. But the people, especially the Muslim people, were were really accommodating. Um, later on, we, we figured out uh, something I guess I'd heard back then, and, and that's that under Islam, it's um, a sin or whatever they would call it. Uh, not a sin, I don't think, but, but mm-hmm. to turn some away from your door. If somebody's in help, you have a religious obligation to help them. Mm-hmm. And when you get these weird travelers stumbling through your country who don't know anything about it and don't know what you're doing, uh, people would automatically help us as best they could. It's tough when they don't understand you. But we, the other thing that helped was, was Zerky. We had this beautiful little one-year-old child, and he was blonde, by the way. Mm-hmm. And that made a big difference because they don't have blondes in Asia. Everybody's <laughs> black bird. So he was kind of magical. And he also gave us an identity. If people would wonder who who are these weird people uh, who don't seem to know what they're doing, or maybe <laughs> older Americans, because they, because they could tell from it, it said USA on our license plate. Mm-hmm. And, and, and maybe they think, well, maybe they're CIA spies, or, or maybe they're who knows who they are, but, but we don't like ugly Americans. Uh, but they they see this this beautiful little blonde kid, and they they didn't think that they might think that oh I know who these people are, they're parents just like us, and and they love their child like we love our child, and suddenly uh, they they'd have to bring their kids out to play with this cute little kid, and we'd get invited into their houses, and all kinds of things. I mean, it made all the difference in the world having a child with us. Mm-hmm. There was there was never a downside to that. It was only an upside. Mm. Now, Bill, you end all of your letters with love, Dad, but in your letter from Tehran, you wrote to Zerki, so when you grow up, Zerki, please try to be thoughtful before passing judgment on people from foreign countries whose histories and cultures you don't understand. And when you go traveling on your own someday, please try to remember that you are often the beneficiary of your government's own foreign policies. Someday, too, you will have dirt on your hands. With love, your pissed-off dad. What was going on behind that letter uh, to him? Well, behind it all, I mean, there is a lot of culture shock 
associated with going going to Iran. And um, the Shah, what was in power, the Shah of Iran at, the, at that point, but he was starting to teeter a little bit. They, they, they'd had a uh, democratically elected government that was the Mossadegh government that uh, we, Eisenhower, and with the help of the CIA, had overthrown the government and, and put the Shah into power. And the Shah, Shah was, was not popular with, with, with the people. Mm-hmm. It, they liked the and nobody liked Shah except uh, the U.S. State Department. And uh, there was politically, it was it was a bit touchy. In spite of everything I have, there, there was a certain amount of resentment against America. But, but I'm going to stick with what I've said when it came to us personally, as opposed to you know foreign policy and that, and that sort of thing. Uh, people were still very welcoming. They, they were they were charmed by us. They, they, they didn't hold any of this against us personally, but we we're very self-conscious. And uh, I just thought when uh, I was writing that, that some of it was on when I was putting the letters together. I edited them and added a little bit. And it was written with, with that government, uh, government, the toppling of the Mossadegh government in mind. And, and by the way, that's a lot, an awful lot of the tr- troubles today, the, the wars in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan trace themselves back to, to that event. That, that really was a little event, and the Iranian people still haven't forgiven us for it. Mm. And I don't mean us personally or individuals, but but as a people. Sure. Now, you know, the one one thing I, I love about uh, this book, Letters to Zerki, it's both a loving tribute to your wife and son, and a story of compassion and and. And encourage, but it also offers a wonderful example of global citizenship. And and you know, a, a prime example is the the excerpt that Ian just uh, you know, just read, where you know you tell Zerki to um, be thoughtful before passing judgment on people from from foreign countries. Talk to us about the 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 humanity that you actually experienced um, when you were traveling and how things may if things are different today in your opinion when you when you travel into other uh, other places and meet new people that is the probably the ultimate benefit of traveling um, as Americans we don't in the 60s they stopped teaching geography in the school and, and the schools the public schools and most Americans are, are abysmally ignorant of the rest of the world if, if they take a vacation they're going to go to Hawaii. The more adventurous adventures of the might go down to one of the beaches in Mexico. But that's about as far as most people get from home, and and them stay in in, in the within the continental United States. And the result is that there might be a little abstract information that, that they got from there, or maybe they read something in the paper, but they're terribly ignorant of other people, and that, that a lot of people don't even understand that they don't.
I'm in the Midwest right now, in North Dakota of all places. I'm running into all kinds of Muslims. And yesterday I had a haircut, and I got talking to the barber about about all these Muslims, women running around, and, and you know, and not perda exactly, but in, in long shawls and with that's covering their faces, some of them. And I'm thinking North Dakota is a, is a hardcore Midwestern state. That's mm-hmm. pretty strange. And the, 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 how do the North Dakotans take this? And, and we, we talked for 45 minutes or so. I'm getting a haircut, and the answer is that a lot of them don't take it very well. Mm. They're, 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 there's resentment developing. Mm. Well, you see, I'm not. I understand that stuff because I've, I've been in the Middle East, and I understand a little bit about the religion. And that's the wonderful thing about travel. The more places you go, the more cultures you experience. You, you learn that in, 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 at its heart, people are pretty much the same. And particularly when it comes to kids, kids, kids are a real leveler. Mm-hmm. Because everybody, all societies have kids. They need them for survival. And um, it, it does make you a citizen of the world. Because you, you know, when I got back, I started looking at things in the paper and on television and it all, it all had a, so much of it had a different cast to it oh well I understand why they did that or, or why why they said that of course mm-hmm. for example it's because of the Shah because they hated what the United States did when, when they installed him and, and, and that kind of thing it re- really broadens you out it makes you think beyond your own borders beyond your own specific little life it makes you think on a much broader scale. As we uh, wrap up here, talk to us about what you hope people will experience from reading Letters to Zerky. Well, one thing is that people will find the world, will start viewing it as a little less formidable. Mm-hmm. That if, if, they're, if they're thinking about, if they thought about the possibility of going someplace uh, unusual, that they will say, well, here's a, here's a normal little family from America who took their dog and and their son and just took off into the unknown and had a wonderful time and uh, had a number of adventures but no no serious adverse experiences and if they can do that well maybe uh, maybe I could go uh, maybe I could take a trip to Morocco uh, something uh, a little bit off the beaten path I'm hoping that it emboldens people a little and, and encourages them to think internationally and to take some of their hard-earned uh, American currency and, and spend it in a foreign country which um, uh, is good for everybody's balance of payments or at least other countries and um, and look at the real world close for a I, I think that's it. It's to, I personally, I think Americans are get pretty darn paranoid over this sort of stuff. I give these book talks, and and they say, "Oh, isn't it dangerous? And is that how could you do that?" And oh, you mean he took a woman into the Middle East? Oh my God! Uh, I mean, it's it's all false. It's all uh, all in people's heads. So much of it is wrong. So I hope it'll embolden readers. Bill Rainey, author of the memoirs Letters to Zerky, we thank you for being with us today on World Footprints Radio. Well, thank you. It's just better to be here. We hope you enjoyed our show today. We always look forward to spending quality time with you and certainly to connecting with you during the week on our social networks and other platforms like Stitcher. So follow us on those and sign up for our newsletter and check out our travel deals from World Footprints. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. 
And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC.